0: The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's in Einstein with Salesforce.
1: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We have seen the most serious escalation of the war
0: since the invasion in February. Putin will not stop. He needs to be stopped. And this is our goal, and this is our aim, and this is our task. He could just
2: flat leave and still probably hold his position together in Russia. Bloomberg
1: Sound On, politics, policy, and perspective from DC's top names.
2: It's especially good to be here with the next United States senator from Georgia, Herschel Walker. I'm
3: not running because I want to be a senator. I'm running because I'm sick
1: and tired. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The Allies plan a new air defense system for Ukraine as Vladimir Putin threatens more missile attacks. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with breaking news on a new effort by the U.S. and NATO to close the skies. We'll talk about it with Mike Rogers, former Republican congressman from Michigan who chaired the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Herschel Walker tries to manage the damage, sitting for an emotional one-on-one interview just a day after the Republican leadership tried to boost his campaign in Georgia. We'll talk about the race with political scientist Andra Gillespie of Emory University. Analysis from our panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis is here, along with Democratic analyst Roger Fisk of New Day Strategy. Just a day after President Zelensky addressed a virtual meeting of the G7, And after the deadly missile strikes on civilians across Ukraine over the weekend, the U.S. and its allies in Europe are up with a new plan to help. It's an integrated air defense system to protect against Russian cruise missiles, weapons from airplanes. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke in Brussels earlier today at a meeting of the Ukraine contact group, as it's called. It's a group of 50 countries that meets to assess Ukraine's defense. We
2: gather again today to support Ukraine's inalienable rights to defend itself. And our resolve and steadiness of purpose has only been strengthened.
1: But this will come with some challenges, and we're joined to talk about it by Mike Rogers, former Republican congressman from Michigan, chaired the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and is steeped in this material. Mr. Chairman, welcome back to Bloomberg.
4: It is great to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: It's looking like Ukraine is about to get something that it's been asking for. I don't know if I should call it an iron dome. I think it's not such a thing technically, but a a, a massive air defense system that would protect against air attack. Will it make a difference?
4: Oh, it'll make a huge difference. Not only can it target incoming missiles, but some of the the missiles that have been launched into Ukraine by Russia uh, are plane-based. And so any time that you can make those uh, weapons have to stand off at a further distance to fire it absolutely has an impact in our ability to a, shoot them down yeah. and, uh, and stop the onslaught.
1: Why didn't we do this eight months ago?
4: We should have absolutely done it eight months ago. Once you were in, you know, it's uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. Some notion that uh, we can very publicly debate about which weapon systems go in or don't go in or that one might be more lethal to Russians than that weapon. That's just an absolute losing, uh, just a, a losing <laughs> approach to this. And so think about it. You'll actually save lives You'll uh, by trying to draw this thing down to a close earlier. So a well-weaponized Ukrainian army shouldn't be able to just uh, not lose. They need to be able to put some hurt on the Russians. Now, they've done that based on their their absolute tenacity to this point. But imagine if they had other weapon systems that would help round out their ability not only to defend their cities and their civilians, but again, put the hurt on these Russians that are now just pouring over the border.
1: From what we understand from General Milley, uh, this will involve weapons systems, uh, de- weapons defense systems, to be clear, from the U.S., from Germany, maybe even other countries. Based on your experience, do you have a sense of how long it would take to make all these different technologies work together, or is this something that we can start now?
4: Well, most NATO technology, by design and implementation, works together already. So that's not going to be the issue. Uh, it's the issue is getting the equipment forward, uh, meaning up to Ukraine, getting the Ukrainians trained on it so that they can be effective. And one thing I will tell you, they have very quickly adapted to new technology on the battlefield. I mean, very impressive. So it's not, that won't part won't take long. But there is going to be some lag here. Uh, and if the Russians know it's coming, the only worry you have is do they, they pour it on missile-wise up, up until that point? And that's, yeah. that's to be determined.
1: Yeah, they obviously know it's coming as well. Of course, you know, wouldn't take long to train Ukrainians on flying MiG-29 jets because they already know how to fly them. Are we going to be talking about this eight months from now, Congressman, as the jets finally go over there that could have made a difference at the beginning?
4: Oh, they definitely could have made a difference. Some I saw these arguments, crazy arguments, that both jets wouldn't make a difference uh, early on in the conflict. And no good under, national security person who understands military doctrine knows that that was true. I, I, that was just nonsense. The Pentagon so, even said it wouldn't make a difference. So how do you square that? Uh, it, it, that's I I don't understand it. I think there's more politics in that than there is substance. Well, and I think that's unfortunate we know the way that they're delivering these other missile systems, that they absolutely would have made a difference. Uh, and are what they afraid of, uh, you mean getting them? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's inevitable. One of the things, and I think why you're seeing this pullback and this notion, well, that might not be effective, that might be effective. Listen, we've got to give them what they're asking for. Mm-hmm. They were asking for MiGs months ago is because the Pentagon keeps saying and the White House keeps saying, well, what if they go into Russia? Listen, the, we're, right now we're just kind of dribbling and drabbling in, and they're taking it and making huge gains. And the original purpose was so you just don't lose. I'd give them everything right now.
1: The concern was sending fighter jets could be seen as something more of a direct uh, conflict between the U.S. or NATO and Russia. Do you feel that way about a no-fly zone? Is this air defense system a better way to keep Americans out of danger?
4: I think it is. Listen, we, we don't want it to escalate beyond the borders of Ukraine, uh, certainly from a NATO perspective, which is is also the United States of America. We, nobody wants that. But what you don't want to do is give this false notion to the Russians that they can just keep doing this for tam, you know time infinitum because that they have the ability not to have the Ukrainians really punch them in the, in the mouth. Now they've been punched in the mouth, they've performed poorly. Uh, Their missile systems are, excuse me, some of their technology and their weapon systems are not functioning the way we actually believe they would. And so all of that is a drag on them. But what you don't want to do is say, listen, I'll just call up 300,000 people, I'll flood the zone, and I'll be doing this for a long time. And that means killing lots of civilians, lots of uh, Ukrainians along the way. We need to force this to get to a point where Putin needs to sit down and say, okay, uh, let's work this out. Right now, neither side is willing to do that.
1: President Biden says Vladimir Putin is a rational actor, as we heard in the interview last night. Do you agree with him?
4: I, listen, I think obviously he's got some issues, but I do think in this military sense he's a rational actor. Yeah. He was told something different from, by his military commanders about the readiness of his forces. Uh, he committed them, and if you see the decision since then, uh, even though their conscripts are not doing well, there's more strategy in what he's doing, including, by the way, you know that leak that came out that said he has a nuclear torpedo, mm. uh, which would mean something that would attack ports, which would impact our, you know, the whole world's economy if you set one off. Uh, the fact that he said, you know, I'm not opposed to using tactical nuclear weapons. Right. And by the way, he's been saying that for 20 years. He believes tactical nuclear weapons are a part of his battlefield arsenal. So that's something to factor in. And so I, in that way, I do think he's, rational. And I think what what the White House was trying to walk back is this notion of Armageddon. You use a tactical nuke. Right. What the president was inferring is a strategic missile exchange, which would be absolutely catastrophic to the world. I don't think anybody believes that's the right answer. And I mean anybody. There's um, a new effort
1: on I Capitol Hill to stop selling, or at least pause selling arms to Saudi Arabia following the oil production cut Listen to Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut talking about this today. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
4: The Saudis need to come to their senses. They have committed a humongous blunger, very much against their own economic and security interests, as well as ours.
1: Should the U.S. freeze out Saudi Arabia, Mr. Chairman, as long as they're helping Russia, even if indirectly?
4: Uh, listen, I think they, they need to turn back around. But remember how we got here. And this is... You know, diplomacy has consequences, and we t- sometimes forget that. Uh, the very fact that this administration uh, stopped supporting uh, the Saudis in in their proxy fight against Iran and with the Houthi rebel, rebels was significant to them. The fact that they are negotiating with Iran on a nuclear deal that all of our Arab League partners say, what are you doing? Please don't do it. Uh, and then the very fact of this continued arm-length lecturing, finger-pointing, Listen, there's a time to be really tough diplomatically, and, I, uh, and I, I'm all in on that. And then there's a time to be smart diplomatically. We need the Saudis, and, and I argue we need the Saudis more than we need the Iranians. Wow. Uh, and it would be a smart thing to do to walk all of that back and say, listen, we're going to give you some strategic help. You know, the geographic region of the Saudi uh, of the Saudis is really important to the United States, better an ally there than an enemy and they've marched on this path to ostracize the saudis to the point where i think they have nowhere else to go we need to change that thinking so you know, also means we ought to ramp up our own domestic production well i was going so to say we if we were energy independent
1: yeah. would you feel the same way
4: i mean listen we would get, we'd have more leverage but again remember the strategic area and what flows through there it is a significant uh, economic uh, zone through the canals and all of that over uh, in in that region. Yeah. And having either Iran and Saudi Arabia fighting is bad for the world economy and our economy. The very fact that they would, you know, continue these proxy fights in and around the region is bad for our national security and their national security. So we just need to align our national security interests. And again, doesn't mean you can't be tough. It doesn't mean you can't put your finger in the chest sometimes. But right now we need to align it to what the bigger strategic threats are to the United States. And the way they're doing this, you're going to shove the Saudis right into the loving arms of of the Russians who have no moral standards.
1: Former Congressman Mike Rogers, former chair of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, appreciate your insights today on Bloomberg. Thanks again. Come back and talk to us soon.
4: Yeah, we will do. Thanks for having me.
1: Fascinating conversation that you're not going to hear anywhere else. And that's what we do here on Bloomberg. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Thanks for joining us on the fastest hour in politics. It's sound on. And a lot more to follow here as Joe Biden weighs in on the idea, as I mentioned, of Vladimir Putin being the rational actor, but also one with irrational thoughts. We're going to get into that with the panel next and see if this plan for air defense is one that's going to work. Rick Davis will be with us, Bloomberg Politics contributor and republican strategist and roger fisk is back the democratic analyst strategist and principal at new day strategy we'll get their insights straight ahead after we check traffic and markets for you glad you came along on a wednesday i'm joe matthew this is bloomberg this is bloomberg sound on with joe matthew on bloomberg radio President Biden weighs in on the war in Ukraine, his thoughts on Vladimir Putin, and of course, a lot of other issues in what was one of the only sit-down interviews that we have seen uh, in his presidency. Sat down with Jake Tapper at CNN. We're going to go through some of this. That's where the rational actor line came from. As we look to the future here in this conflict, we welcome our panel. Rick Davis is with us, Republican strategist, And, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor, now joined today by Roger Fisk, Democratic Strategist, Principal at New Day Strategy. Great to have both of you here. And, Roger, welcome back. It has been far too long. Uh, Why don't we go back through this moment here, as we just discussed uh, with Mike Rogers, as Jake Tapper asks uh, Joe Biden the uh, question of the night.
2: Do you think Putin is a rational actor? I think he is a rational actor who's miscalculated significantly.
1: He did stop to think about that, Roger. It didn't seem like a rehearsed answer. Was it the wrong answer?
3: First off, Joe, thanks so much for having me, and I, I very much enjoy being on with Rick. I would, uh, of, of the entire conversation, I think we could safely put that one into the into the bucket of, of Gaff. I, I mm. doubt that he intended to go out there and say that. I kind of uh, I, I get what he's trying to say, which is to say that... Um, that uh, even a, even a, an unstable um, international vision of one's country can be um, pursued by a by a quote unquote rational actor. I think in in in, in Putin's own mind, he regards himself as rational. Mm. Um, but what we're seeing is is the the kind of curdling of those of, of that entire conflict. And uh, the most dangerous thing to someone with the the self-regard, shall we say, of Putin is international embarrassment when I think think what we've seen just in the last 48 hours in terms of the barbarity is going to be dialed up intensely. So even if he continues to be um, pushed back into Russia, um, that uh, he will dial up the cruelty um, so unfortunately, I, I have a feeling that we have much more still ahead of us than behind us.
1: Rick, was that President Biden's way of saying that we should take him seriously? It just didn't come out the way that maybe he wanted it to?
2: No, I think the conclusion by most of the national security team within the Biden administration, including Defense Department, is that 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 Putin is acting as a rational actor. Uh, some of the things he does seem irrational, but that that that, you know, he's acting as a you know, sort of commander in chief who's moving his chess pieces around and he's just not having much success with the chess. And, and, and the reality is we have to act that way because if he is irrational and he has nuclear weapons, it poses a completely different dilemma. Uh, And so I think that, that the president was playing out his hand saying he's rational. We expect him to act rationally and, and therefore the use of nuclear weapons, regardless of whether they are a you know, a water-based, uh, sea-based weapon or a tactical nuke, uh, it, it's, it's unacceptable uh, to the Western world, not just to the United yeah. States. I mean, you know, in this case, the president speaks for the civilized world.
1: The companion question here uh, was about meeting with Vladimir Putin. OK, so if you think he's a rational character, would you not sit down and meet with him? The answer was interesting as well.
2: Look, I have no intention of meeting with him. But, uh, for example, if he came to me at the G20 and said, I want to talk about the release of Greiner, I'd meet with him. I mean, it would depend.
1: He, he might have uh, wanted to use her first name, Roger, but that's actually a, a little bit warmer, right? He, he actually might have thought about that question.
3: Yeah. And I think the president is is absolutely correct because what, what, what Putin would want from that is just the image, the validation. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what goes into diplomacy before something like that is uh, the most of your leverage is before that moment. Right. So, for example, working with North Korea about some verification mechanisms and all these other things that could lead into a, a head of state meeting with another head of state. And so I think he's absolutely spot on about that. And and more tactically, having staffed a president at a G eight and things like that, mm-hmm. or at a G20 in this context, G nineteen, um, huh. if it were as if it were as uh, a, uh, a a microscopic situation that was to be discussed, a specific individual, a specific, prescription drug, a specific vaccine, Mm -hmm. then you could put it in that in that kind of bucket and and, and somewhat decouple it from this larger um, dynamic. But if it is just let's shake hands in front of our country's flags kind of stuff, not going to happen.
1: Rick, do you think he should make the point if it if it resulted in a prisoner swap or prisoner release, make the point to meet with Putin? That would be that would be quite a story. The images would be historic.
2: Well, I think you got to be careful. I mean, you know, I, I learned from John McCain, who used to say, I'll meet with anybody as long as they <laughs> meet my conditions for the meeting.
4: Uh-huh. Okay.
2: <laughs> and, and, and it made total sense, right? OK, a conditions-based meeting. Uh, is there a ceasefire in Ukraine? Is there a exchange of prisoners? Is there? I mean, like there are a lot of things that you could condition a meeting uh, with Vladimir Putin on that, that would actually be potentially attractive to Vladimir Putin to do and then create a better environment for that meeting. Um, it doesn't do any good uh, for the president to meet with this guy while he's acting like a global thug. And so uh, it elevates Putin. It does not uh, solve the problem. And I think this was the mistake when uh, Donald Trump uh, met with Kim Jong-il and uh, gave him a platform that he could never have gotten from uh, a president of the United States and, uh, or anybody else who was a world leader. So I think if you can create the right conditions for a meeting, then I think a meeting is always got to be on the table. But um, my guess is uh, Putin probably wouldn't accept whatever conditions uh, would be reasonable enough to be publicly accepted to have a meeting like that.
1: The White House still can't figure out why they haven't heard back on this offer for a prisoner swap. We'll keep talking with Rick Davis and Roger Fisk, our panel for today. On Bloomberg Sound On, as we turn uh, to the race in Georgia ahead, Herschel Walker has decided to sit down for an interview and begin cleaning up the mess. Is that possible, or did he just make it worse? We're going to talk with political scientist Andre Gillespie and our panel about it ahead. This is Bloomberg. The event was supposed to be a reset. You get Rick Scott, Tom Cotton, both Republicans from the Senate, Rick Scott, of course, part of the leadership here, to stump with Herschel Walker. Actually, go to Georgia and get down to business.
3: It is great to be back in the state of Georgia. It's it's especially good to be here with the next United States Senator from Georgia, See?
1: Herschel Walker. There's no scandal. Tom Cotton there, getting the crowd rolling. Rick Scott spent time talking with them, and then, of course, Herschel Walker himself. Now, if you've been living under a rock, you might not know about this. I don't think I have to give you the background on this whole story. As the Senate candidate who opposes abortion rights has been hit with allegations that he paid for a girlfriend to have the procedure, urged her to have a second one. And now she's telling the Washington Post she had to argue for him and beg him to pay for it. Interesting backdrop to tell a story like this one that Herschel Walker has been telling on the campaign trail. We actually talked about it here once, the whole bull cow story.
3: So I've been telling this little story about this bull out in the field with six cows and three of them are pregnant. So, you know, he got something going on. But all he cared about is kept his nose against the fence, looking at three other cows that didn't blown to him.
1: OK, uh, just that would have would have been enough, I suspect. But, I mean, we have to finish the story. Again, a Herschel Walker.
3: So one day he measured that fence up. And he said, I think I can jump this. So that day came where he got back. And he got back, and as he took off running, he dove over that fence, and his belly got cut up onto the bottom. But as he made it over on the other side, he shook it off and got so excited about it. And he ran to the top of that hill, but when he got up there, he realized they were bulls, too. So what I'm telling you... Don't think something is better somewhere else.
1: I mean, if you could make up something better, I'd play it. Sat down today with ABC News, an exclusive one-on-one, to reinforce the denial.
2: Saying a flat-out denial to any knowledge of an abortion, or is it Flat possible out denial, it no, and you don't Flat-out remember? denial, lie. Lie, lie, lie. And you know what's sad about it? He had... Uh, what was it? A receipt and had a check and had all that. He hadn't shown anything. He hadn't shown me having a saying something about an abortion. That's, that's what's terrible. Let's
1: bring in Andra Gillespie. Emory University political science professor. Andra, what a time for us to speak here. He's got a debate on Friday night. The average of polls at Real Clear last I saw had him down by five against Raphael Warnock. How would you describe the state of the Walker campaign?
0: I, I would point out that um, based on uh, the margin of error um, and the confidence intervals of, of these polls, mm-hmm. that's still statistically a tie in most of these instances. And so this race is going to be very close. Um, it's too close to call. There are two other candidates in the race. And according to Georgia law, a candidate has to get Uh, 50% plus one of uh, the vote in order to avoid a runoff. So one, we very likely could be looking at a runoff election. Um, And two, regardless of who wins, we're looking at very narrow margins between Walker and Warnock because of the competitive nature of Georgia politics.
1: Who cares about this story? Because I keep hearing from Republicans that people in Georgia don't care, that they're worried about inflation, they're worried about crime that it's people like me in the media who who are playing this stuff. How is this actually resonating in your state?
0: I think most voters have already made their minds up about the race and the polling data uh, shows that there are very few undecided voters, but it's those undecided voters that could make the difference between one of these candidates winning or losing the race. And that's why these stories are most important. I think the vast majority of voters are either really strong Democrats or strong Republicans. They've made up their mind about who they're going to vote for. Mm-hmm. But there's a small sliver of undecided voters, of, of independent voters who may be still trying to gather more information and this isn't the type of information that the walker campaign would want these voters to have because they may make a decision to say that this compounded with the other baggage that walker brings to the table may be enough to disqualify him from holding the seat so what we're waiting for in the general election is to see when how independents break, but we're also going to look to see whether or not there's actually going to be a drop off, if you will. So there may be people who skip the Senate race and choose to vote Republican down yeah. ticket in all the other races, including the gubernatorial race. <laughs> um, and if that happens, that actually bodes uh, well or that would actually probably bode better for Raphael Warnock than it well, would it for like Walker. It.
1: Andre, thank you so much. I appreciate your talking with us on Bloomberg Radio. Andre Gillespie at Emory University. I want to bring the panel in on this uh, quickly. Roger Fisk and Rick Davis. Uh, Roger, I'm guessing, for starters, you would tell the candidate to not be telling that story, but does sitting down for an interview in this day and age help?
3: Well, to his credit, the Old Testament does make numerous parallels between chattel and women, so maybe that's what he's. <laughs> thinking about but no i mean this is an this is an absolute train wreck and unfortunately for mr walker it it joins eight or 10 other data points right it's it's not just a an anomaly um it seems as if we're living in a, essentially a consequence free environment um for especially folks on the republican side i, I don't know what depths of conduct um, could could we could be lowered to and still have people support them. What's really interesting for me to add to the list of your very able guest of just a moment ago is that Brian Kemp has gone radio silent on the Walker candidacy. Mm-hmm. So if all of a sudden you have something as tight as your guest just um, described, which I completely agree with, and then you have a relatively popular Republican incumbent governor, go- governor who is um, not, seemingly willing to carry any water for his own party's Senate nominee, that in and of itself could make the difference, Boy. in addition to educated, independent women who are who split from the former president and um, uh, resulted in not yeah. only him losing Georgia, but losing the two Senate seats.
1: Rick, we'll have some more time to hear your thoughts on this in a couple of minutes, but but before we, we turn uh, to traffic and markets, would you be spending time with herschel walker preparing for this debate i mean is that going to be a change maker here in this campaign
2: well certainly a lot of people are going to be curious right i mean what he's done is created a curiosity that now he and only he can extinguish
1: they're going to have a ratings record on this thing hold that thought rick i'm joe matthew this is bloomberg this is bloomberg sound on with joe matthew on bloomberg radio As we spend time with our panel, Rick Davis is with us today, along with Roger Fisk and an eye on this race in Georgia. Just a couple of days before their big debate, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Walker, as we were just discussing, and we'll hear again from the panel on this, sat for an interview today with ABC News. And it wasn't just the denials uh, that were important. It was also the level of emotion now, remember here, this is, this is a football player. He's a, he's, a, he's a tough guy, probably doesn't cry a lot on TV. But they got there today.
2: I told
3: everyone, I'm not running because I want to be a senator. I'm running because I'm sick and tired. People are dying. People can't eat because of the people and watching what they're doing to people. And then they lie.
1: Let's bring in Rick Davis and Roger Fisk. Uh, Rick, uh, I'm not sure this works uh, or not, but somebody, I- I'm assuming, told him it was okay to go there. That 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 he might want to do uh, something more personal, more emotional on camera. What do you think?
2: Well, I, I'm pretty confident that the people around him uh, re- really needed to reset this campaign. It's the reason there are uh, other senators coming in from Washington D.C. to yeah. try to uh, change the narrative. He desperately needs to get a narrative change, and so. Uh, I'm sure they walked him out thinking, you know, Brooke, this is your one best shot to set the record straight and try to reconnect with the people of Georgia. Um, look, these are hard, long campaigns. They create a lot of emotion. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that he became emotional because I think he sees his life kind of being torn apart and whether it's accurate or not, uh, his, his life's in the grinder. He's in the, uh, Crucible, and it's his moment, and he's got to set it right. So wow. the pressure is enormous in those kinds of situations.
1: Rick Scott again was there in Georgia to stump with uh, Herschel Walker, and he was asked after they had a little scrum after he and, and Tom Cotton uh, about Raphael Warnock and about this whole scandal and whether this bothered him. He turned right to the Oppo on Warnock. Listen to what he said. He's a
2: head of a church, and they kick people out of the church for being just a few dollars behind the writ. Here's a guy that abused his wife. A, he doesn't he stand up for anything. He's he's voted for abortion up until the moment of birth. Roth, Raphael Warnick has.
1: These are pretty heavy accusations, uh, Roger. I don't know if any of them are true or not. I don't know if this will will be uh, will be aired out in the campaign. But do you expect a lot more where that came from? Talking sure. About a reverend here.
3: Uh, I mean, you can just feel the kind of projectile vomiting of like, let's just send everything possible what out an there. Image. Um image. And. You know, Rick Scott, have you, the, the person who I, I believe has paid one of the largest Medicaid fraud fines in, in history is is not necessarily not really someone to be the, the traffic cop of morality in a lot of these things. And you could tell in his voice, he's so hurried and he's just trying to kind of machine gun this stuff out. Um, and that's certainly no way to get it to actually um, to, to stick at all. And they're they're panicking. Um as, as far back as when I first started to even just read news, let alone politics, I always thought there was a fundamental kind of, shall we say, insincerity, to be polite, about the moral majority voting kind of movement. I always thought there was just a core kind of fraudulence to it. And and lo and behold, especially in the last five or six years, we we see that it's, it's all circumstantial. It's all transactional. Um, there's a, an absolute vacuum of principle there. And it's all about um, getting the majority in the U.S. Senate so that they can, you know, move forward an agenda that marginalizes women and, and increases tax cuts for the for the wealthy. And you can see the the panic as they see that slipping away. Because well, we've got they, a debate on Friday. I know. I mean, and, 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 what's
1: the Reverend's job on Friday?
3: The reverend's job, it's odd. It's a very, very odd situation in the last few years when it's become the Democrats' default posture to be the adult in the room. Mm-hmm. That that used to be the province of our, our friends across but the aisle. But do you just
1: let him do this to himself, or does, the, does, does Warnock have to go on the attack? Warnock
3: has to go in there and be a stable, sober steward of yeah. civic and public life, and uh, dependable somewhere between the 40-yard lines of, of the American kind of ideological spectrum.
4: Football reference.
3: And, uh, and... And, and and then just, you know, when the other guy's digging, you know, just don't take away his shovel. Okay. Is that the the
1: move here, Rick, or does Warnock need to go on the attack?
2: Uh, you know, I think Rogers got something to this notion that you've got a guy like Rick Scott coming down there to campaign for uh Herschel Walker. I wouldn't I I I wouldn't attack Rick Scott, but like I, I would definitely, if I were Raphael Warnock, use the opportunity to say, hey, look, yeah. these guys get in power. Their agenda is Take away your Social Security, take away your welfare checks, take away your Medicaid, uh, make you pay higher prices for drugs. And uh, I mean, like this is his agenda. And I would I would stick that right on Herschel Walker and say, you just campaigned with him. You tell me you disagree with everything that he's for. And I think he has to go on the attack because the reality is it is a dead heat and there's nothing guaranteed in this election. And we've seen Georgia you know, uh, uh, be pretty rocky when it comes to outcomes. So uh, I think sitting on a one-point lead is a a disaster. Fisk and Davis
1: with us here for a couple of more moments, our panel today. I've got to talk about what's going on in Los Angeles because while this fire is burning for Republicans in Georgia, there's a real mess for some Democrats in L.A. This is sound from uh, inside the L.A. City Council chamber. (gasps) where three city councilors, including council president Nuri Martinez, were caught on tape making crude and racist remarks about, among other things, the black son of another council member named Mike Bonin. Speak, they chant. As one of the three council members, not the council president, walked out onto the panel here. President Biden has called for all three to resign. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, the L.A. Times was out with this leaked tape of Nuri Martinez, again as the council president, who is now taking a leave of absence, talking with these two other counselors.
0: It's like the oddest thing, it's like black and brown on this float, and then there's this this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Este niño has no, he's, they're not even, yeah, no, they're not doing, the kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the float, Practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control
1: him. Yeah, that was translation, little monkey, she said at the end there. Again, that white guy is counselor uh, Mike Bonin, who is a gay white man who adopted this black child, and he made a remarkable and emotional address to the council. There are a lot of people who are now asking for forgiveness. And, and, Asking for forgiveness is a good first step, but, well, it's a second step, because first, first, you must resign and then ask for forgiveness. This speech lasted over 10 minutes. It was emotional. You can hear how involved the people were there. Uh, To think that this has gone all the way to the White House, Roger, President Biden, according to Karine Jean-Pierre, thinks all three should resign. Do you agree?
3: I do think they should resign. Um, I would hesitate about getting the White House involved only because they're probably asked to intervene in 15 or 20 of these things a month in Mm -hmm. some form or another. And you can think back uh, early in the Obama administration about um, Professor Gates at Harvard and the police officer in Cambridge, Mass. And then they ended up doing this kind of clumsy beer summit. You get into these kind of microscopic kind of singular situations, and they, they're they going to have to turn around. The White House is going to have to decline to get involved in 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 other situations like that. So tactically, I would have recommended that they not get involved and let this play out based on the rules and the code of conduct of the Los Angeles City Council. Mm-hmm. But for my money, um, based on who these folks are and the tinderbox that Los Angeles is and the responsibility that they have they should really take a hard look at themselves and, and step down.
1: It's a pretty major scandal for the city, Rick, but it's actually made international news. Should the White House even be weighing in on this?
2: Uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest the White House get involved in something like this. I mean, you could be cute and say, well, Gavin Newsom wants to be president. Let him handle it. Uh, <laughs> but that's just, that's just me. Um, the, uh, it's just one of these very nasty, sad um, uh, situations where you, you know, unfortunately, in politics, especially local politics, sometimes uh, really bad people say really bad things, yeah. and the, the 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 community there is going to fix the problem. You can be sure of that, uh, and uh, and and they'll get their ounce of flesh out of these people. But uh, to, to 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 make this more than it really is, I know this is the social media world we live in now, yeah, and right. you know everything is everything local is international. But in this case, uh, I think these are best handled by the community that's affected directly by them.
1: I'm going to attempt to do this. I've got one more for both of you, and it brings us to Pennsylvania, where a, a very important Senate race is underway. And John Fetterman, the Democratic lieutenant governor, of course, had a stroke. And uh, we've talked on this program about the back and forth about his health with Dr. Oz. But he sat for an interview uh this was with NBC News, and he had to use a closed caption uh, to to fully understand the questions he was being asked. In his words, here that
2: auditory processing where you know, I'll hear someone speaking, but sometimes I'll be able to be. Uh precise on what exactly that they're saying. I use captioning.
1: He did have to slow down a couple of times, correct himself. He's clearly not fully recovered here. Uh, we only have about a minute left, Roger. Is, is this a liability or something that, in, in, in the words of Senator Bob Casey, he could use to his benefit in what is now uh, a world that's much more sympathetic to people with disability?
3: Ultimately, people ask themselves, is this person who they say they are? And they can they can look at his time as mayor of Braddock. They can look at his time as lieutenant governor and know that this is not a condition that he's had all this time. Right. And so I think they can factor that into him encountering a particular stumble in his health. And you, you, the, the reflective surface of that is, the, is his opponent, you know, who may, is not coming off as genuine or authentic. So in a sense, I think it can cut uh, relatively well for him.
1: Do you agree with that, Rick? You've been down this road before with a candidate's health. Was it the right time for that conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, I read the reporting on it and then uh, I was really disturbed by it, right? Wow, can the guy actually campaign? Can he yeah. do a debate? Can he can he do the functions of the office? And then I watched the interview and I thought, ah, oh, he's doing fine.
1: Okay. Rick Davis, Roger Fisk,
2: what a great talk. Great panel. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.